Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury, a podcast for people living in our area, brought to you by the leading health experts servicing our community. Our program is brought to you by St John of God Healthcare's Hawkesbury District Health Service, your local hospital positioned in the heart of the magnificent Hawkesbury Valley. Health professionals in conversation, talking about what matters most to our community. We cover all range of topics, from the latest innovations, fascinating histories of conditions and treatments, to the ailments that are particularly prevalent in the Hawkesbury. With a panel of health experts, we'll explore everything health-related from advice, insights and access. Brought to you by our community, for our community. The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. It should not be relied on to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease or as a substitute for the specific advice of a health professional. Hawkesbury District Health Service does not assume liability for the accuracy or completeness of the information. If you are seeking advice relevant to your particular circumstances or are feeling unwell, you should seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any surgical or invasive procedure carries risks. Before proceeding, you should seek a second opinion from an appropriately qualified health practitioner. Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury. My name's Tina Thew and I'm the Deputy Director of Community and Allied Health here at Hawkesbury Hospital. I'm also a physiotherapist here, but I have a very particular interest in rehabilitation. So I've worked in a few different hospitals around Sydney, but for some reason I keep coming back to the Hawkesbury. I just love the Hawkesbury and I'm very blessed to be able to work here and also live here. So today we're going to be looking at hip innovations and procedures and particular types of hip surgery. Hip surgery is a very big part of what we do here at Hawkesbury and we have some of the country's leading orthopaedic surgeons working right here at our facility. Each one of them has their own nuanced approach to a wide variety of complex hip problems. The range of procedures undertaken here includes all of the important surgical approaches to the hip as well as unique approaches to hip tendon reconstruction. Our community is very fortunate to have ready access to a hospital that provides such highly specialised and skilled care in this particular field. Because it's such an important focus for us here at the hospital, We plan to host the program over two parts. To discuss some of these hip problems in more detail and the history of how we've developed this level of expertise in the management of these complex conditions, as well as the range of options available here at Hawkesbury, I'm joined by Dr Michael Stenning, one of Australia's leading orthopaedic surgeons and head of department here at Hawkesbury Hospital. Dr Stenning, welcome. Thank you, Tina. So, Dr. Stenning, you've been in clinical practice here at Hawkesbury since 1999. Now, that seems a long time, but I actually started around the same time. So, I do remember the handsome young orthopod uh, when he started. So, let me ask you, why did you choose to work at Hawkesbury and what made you interested in the area of orthopaedics? Thank you, Tina. It's interesting how I ended up in uh, working here at Hawkesbury. Basically, when I finished my training, I uh, worked with a fellow called Y.K. Chung, who uh, was an orthopaedic surgeon over at Nepean. And while I was working with him, he actually had a lot of experience in hip and knee replacements. Anyway, while I was working with him, I was planning to go overseas after that to do my fellowship. And he said to me, look, there's an opportunity over at Hawkesbury for a, um, a job, and it's probably a wise idea to 
secure a job before you go overseas. So when you come back, you've got somewhere to go. Anyway, um, I inquired and interviewed and, and got the job and and then the rest is history. Um, you know, I've remained here obviously for uh, many years now. But the thing I like about Hawkesbury is it's a stable cohort. You can create a good team to work with in the operating theatre environment, which is important obviously for outcomes. And I really like the community feel of the area. And I really enjoy working with the um, the patients from around here as well, the, the just general population. It's been a pleasure working with you over the last 20 years, I'm frightened to say. So can you tell us some of the causes of hip pain? Uh, and what are the most common causes of hip pain? By far and away, the most common cause of hip pain is osteoarthritis. We have a thing called the National Joint Replacement Registry, and that records data of every um, hip replacement, for instance, that's done in the country. And 95% of cases who have hip replacements are due to osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis can occur just because of generalised wear and tear. You know, as you age, your joint wears out. It can occur after trauma. If someone's injured their joint, then eventually it becomes arthritic. And sometimes it can occur if you've been on medication that might affect the actual blood flow to the the joint, particularly what we call the femoral head of the hip joint, and that causes a thing called avascular necrosis. One of the other causes that used to be common was rheumatoid arthritis. But interestingly, we don't see very many patients these days who need joint replacements as a consequence of rheumatoid arthritis, but it certainly can cause a painful hip. Okay, so osteoarthritis is obviously the biggest and most common cause of hip pain. When you see your patients, what sort of functional changes do you see when they present to you? Well, first of all, they complain of pain. The pain they describe is generally in the groin region, but it can radiate. Um, If it's going to radiate, it'll go down into the thigh and into the knee. It rarely goes below the knee. If they describe pain that goes below the knee, then it could be coming from their back as a source of the, um, you know, the issue. They functionally, they often complain of um, uh, first thing in the morning when they get up, their joint feels stiff. Then it sort of loosens up a little bit. But towards the end of the day, after they've been on it for a while, the pain starts to get worse again. Um, when they um, retire to bed in the evening, they often find it aches for a while. Then they'll you know, eventually get comfortable but it can, if it's really bad, it can wake them at night when they, uh, you know, in the middle of the night and they have to, uh, you know, take some pain relief. The other little quirky things that they complain of is they often one of the very first things they notice is they have difficulty putting their shoes and socks on. They'll often complain to you that that's uh, a problem. So they have to get, you know, shoehorns and things like that to put their shoes on and stuff. They have difficulty walking distances and that then uh, limits them as to where they can go. You know, and for instance, if they're doing their, if they have to go and do their shopping, they might have to just stop and rest for a while because it hurts too much. They might have to eventually use some aids to help them get around, like a walking stick or even a, you know, frame if it's really bad, or crutches if it's really bad. So it does impact quite significantly on their day-to-day life. Oh yeah, yeah. So coming to see you would be a breath of fresh air, some hope for them. Well, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, when they come to see me, they, uh, uh, well, obviously they're hoping that I can take their pain away. And of course we can with, with surgeries, but we, we don't recommend a surgery straight away. One of the things about when you see a patient is you have to gauge how much pain they're in and how much 
it's really impacting their activities of daily living before you recommend a surgery. Of course, yes. Uh, and I believe physio might take some yeah, role in that that's too. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I understand, uh, obviously, you're a hip surgeon, uh, but you have a particular interest in a slightly different approach to hip replacement surgery. I believe the procedure is known as the anterior approach. Mm, mm. Can you describe what this is and why you use this approach? Yeah. There are basically three approaches to the hip joint. Um, one's, well, the traditional approach was through the back. We call it the posterior approach. Then there's the lateral approach from the side. And then uh, the anterior approach, which is what I use now for the majority of my hip replacements. The reason the anterior approach came around was basically it's an approach that goes between muscular planes. So you're not actually dissecting muscles, you're just spreading them apart. And the theory behind that is that it preserves the muscles and it preserves particularly the strength of the muscles. So the other aspects of using the anterior approach, not only does it preserve the muscle strength, it helps with their rehab afterwards. Um, it often enables them to recover more quickly. Um, it's less painful too in a, a lot of patients. In fact, it's amazing. Sometimes you'll, you know, you'll do a round directly after surgery and the patient's just sitting up in bed and they have no complaints of pain whatsoever. The other final thing is that it uh, makes the hip joint much more stable. Because the muscles are all still intact and they haven't been violated, the, uh, the hip joint's um, more contained and, and the muscles help uh, keep it in place better. Yeah, I must say, as a physio, seeing patients who have had the anterior approach definitely get moving quite quickly. Yeah, the main reason for, for adopting it was primarily to have less pain and also to get them to recover more quickly, yeah. Okay, so you head a department with a number of orthopaedic surgeons here at Hawkesbury that perform hip surgeries. What other available options are there here at Hawkesbury? Uh, and are there certain procedures better for certain patients? Yeah, my colleagues, um, we do a variety of um, approaches to hip replacements. In fact, we do all of those three approaches that I mentioned, the posterior, the lateral, and of course the anterior. Dr. Karashi uh, does a modified posterior approach, which is called the superpath. Um, and that basically is uh, designed to be a more minimally invasive approach uh, with the, you know, the objectives of having less pain relief and quicker recovery. Dr. Walsh does a more lateral approach, but he has an interest in uh, repair of the abductor mechanism. And um, when you approach from the side, you get you actually have to take the abductors down to do that approach, but he uh, is very good at repairing the abductors and obviously does that as a routine, uh, even when he's not doing a hip replacement for other conditions. So that's why he favours that approach. And then uh, Dr Katib does the posterior approach. Yes, we're quite blessed with this repertoire of different procedures and all uh, very successful postoperatively. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, our, our registrars who come here to train, uh, you know, they, they comment that this is one of the few hospitals in, uh, you know, on their training here in New South Wales where they get experience or exposure to all of the different approaches for hip replacement. I think one of the issues is that patients feel they have to uh, go into the city to source the best type of surgery or the, the best person to do the hip replacement. But what they don't realise is that we actually have the expertise here. As I was just saying, our, our department is able to approach hip replacement from every 
angle, so to speak. In actual fact, people come from far and wide to Hawkesbury to have uh, procedures performed. Absolutely. In fact, um, well, Dr Walsh, with his expertise in um, uh, the abductor repairs, have uh, patients who are coming from all around Australia. Very exciting. In our second part of the program, we actually will speak with Dr Michael Walsh uh, to discuss his particularly unique approach. So a while back, Dr Stenning, we were discussing the history of hip procedures and it was absolutely fascinating to listen to how it has evolved over the many years. And particularly interesting is the role that engineering and material science has played in the development of the hip replacement. Just wondering if you could give us a brief overview of some of the highlights of hip replacement innovation since early surgeons first performed this procedure. I believe it's almost 200 years ago. It is interesting, the history of hip replacement. In the very first uh, surgery that was done for hip conditions was in 1821, Tina. So, Wow. Yeah. That is 200 years ago now, um, or almost. <laughs> uh, that was done by a person called Anthony White uh, at Westminster Hospital in the UK. And basically what he did was he just excised the femoral head, which we call today a Girdleston's procedure. You know, interestingly, we occasionally still do a Girdleston's procedure for hip conditions. In fact, I remember when I first came into practice here, I had a very difficult patient who had had multiple surgeries on their hip, primarily because it had got infected and they had a lot of difficulty eradicating the infection. And um, she came to see me for another opinion. And in the end, the only real solution I thought was to just take everything out, take all the hip uh, implants out and leave her with effectively what's called the Girdleston's procedure. And she did very, very well. We, we eradicated the infection. I believe we rehabilitated her, yes, <laughs> and we did actually get her home. Yeah. It was quite amazing. Yeah. It, and um, only the other day, her husband came to see me and he uh, and she came along with him. And I hadn't seen her for 15 years, I'd say. And she was still going strong. In fact, she was driving the car. She uh, walked in with him and, you know, she still functions fine. So just for our audience, the femoral head is the long bone in your leg. Yeah. So it's the ball part yes. of the socket. Exactly. So the, the hip joint is a ball and socket joint. That's the best way to think about it. And the femoral head, as you say, is the ball part. So Girdleston's, and that was the very first sort of procedure performed in 1821 where they just removed the ball. Certainly come a long way since yeah, then. that's right. <laughs> so then since then, then the next attempt at a, a hip replacement surgery was done by a person called uh, Professor Gluck in Berlin, and that was in 1891. And he basically used ivory to create a hip joint. After that, in 1940, uh, there was a person called Austin Moore, who was an American surgeon in, um, at Columbia Hospital in North Carolina. And he put in a metal femoral head and shaft, but he didn't do anything to the socket side. And that was called the Austin Moore prosthesis. And we actually, when I first started training, we were still using the Austin Moore prosthesis. It was just press fitted into the femoral shaft. Anyway, the real innovations and the, and the father of modern hip replacement is a person called uh, Sir John Charnley, and he was a UK surgeon. He set up a hip centre in Wrightington and he had a very research-focused approach. And he was also, he thought of things in a sort of an engineering capacity. 
So he worked closely with a, another engineer called Harry Craven. Anyway, the two of them figured out that um, in order to replace a hip, you really had to replace both sides, the ball and the socket. He also realised that in, for the hip to work properly, it had to be um, very, well, it had to move freely. So, you know, hip joints are lubricated. Um, well, he had to figure out a surface that, that where the ball would move freely on the socket. So he uh, used a metal implant on a Teflon socket. Anyway, he, he first did this in 1960, and then he followed the, a few patients, but it soon became obvious uh, within a year that the Teflon was actually wearing out and it was creating problems. So he had to find another type of uh, bearing surface. Well, he thought polyethylene might be a good uh, bearing surface. So he started using that. And sure enough, that actually worked quite well. So polyethylene, uh, is that a, a plastic? A plastic. It's like Teflon, but it's a more, it's a harder sort of plastic. So that was used on the socket side and he used metal ball on a, um, it was all one piece, one metal piece with the metal going down the shaft and a ball on top of it that articulated with the plastic socket. Fascinating. It's amazing. But then on, on top of that, he had to uh, figure out how to secure the implants onto the bone. Now, um, Gluck, back in 1891, used screws, and uh, Austin Moore just press-fitted it into the bone. But Charnley realised that he had to secure it better than that. So he actually realised cement might be the best uh, uh you know, ingredient to secure it. And he turned to the dentists who were using cement at the time and basically uh, used that material incorporated into his hip replacements and that worked very well. And he actually incorporated antibiotic gentamicin into the cement to try and decrease the rate of infection, which was a problem as well. So he created all sorts of innovations and really, you know, we use those um, uh, principles today. Uh, what an interesting history, Dr. Stenning. So not only the techniques, but the longevity of the hip replacements uh, would have changed quite significantly over the last 200 and even 20 years. That's definitely been the case. A lot of patients, when they come to see me, they often say, oh, doc, you know, I've been told, that, you know, my hip replacement's only going to last 10 years. Well, that's not the case uh, these days, fortunately. We actually have collected information, uh, every single joint replacement that's implanted into patients around the country is, you know, the data of that is collected by what we call the National Joint Replacement Registry. And that's been happening now for 20 years in Australia. And in fact, this registry is a leading sort of research uh, body in, in the world now. And from that, we now know that a hip replacement, which is uncomplicated, you know, does, doesn't have uh, complications, will last um, 97% of hip replacements are still going strong after 15 years. Now, if after 15 years they're still functioning well, um, in my experience, you'll often um, find that they'll continue to function for another five years minimum. So that's at least 20 years of good function. And in fact, uh, the other thing that we are starting to get information on is that Younger patients who are having hip replacements, and um, I don't know if you're aware, but I work at one of the children's hospitals as well, and uh, we're even now doing hip replacements in, well, teenagers, which years ago was just never done, and the results of those hip replacements are that they're functioning just as well as adults now. 
Wow. So they're still working fine, um, just as a hip replacement, if you put one into a 60 or a 70-year-old, is after 20 years. Amazing. So we, we still don't have the data as to how long those hip replacements might potentially last for, but it's very encouraging early results that we're getting. We've had further innovations, which we've touched on briefly. Can you describe how those innovations have resulted in improvements in the rehabilitation, so the post-operative recovery process as well? Well, I remember when uh, I first uh, was, uh, well, when I was a resident and I first saw hip replacements being done, it was a big deal doing a hip replacement. Patients used to come in the... um, sometimes two or three days before their surgery. They'd spend um, those days having all their preoperative tests being done. They would have, you know, they, they'd have special preparations to make sure their skin was well prepared, you know, all, all things to try and minimise complications with hip replacements. Then they would actually stay in hospital for at least two weeks before they went home. And that was even without rehab, so they would have a little bit of physiotherapy in hospital, and 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 it was a it it was a long, you know, protracted process, which obviously impacted patients significantly. Anyway, these days we're now working. The goal is we're working towards doing almost day only hip replacements. So um, the patients will. Well, they they never come in. Well, they rarely come in the day before. They generally come in on the same day, but. On average, they'll stay in for two or three days. They might then go off and have rehab um, for a week or so, and then they go home. But um, a lot of patients don't even go to rehab now. They can go directly home. And part of the reason that uh, this can happen is because the techniques that we use, like I was saying with the anterior approach, it um, preserves muscle strength. But also you've got what we use in theatre now for instance, we uh, use local anaesthetic infiltrated around the wound, which means that patients wake up a lot more comfortably. And if you wake up uh, and you're not in pain, you don't tend to be in as much pain afterwards either. We also use uh, medications that minimise the amount of blood loss that occurs during the surgery, a thing called tranexamic acid, and that's now routinely used. And th- these things combined really help in a patient's recovery. It certainly uh, has made a difference from our perspective with the rehabilitation process over the last 20 years. We certainly started off with quite a few restrictions that we couldn't do with our patients. Today, we get them up pretty much within hours sometimes uh, after surgery. So it it is quite a transition. And of course, one of the advantages of doing that is that you minimise one of the main risks with hip replacement, and that is getting a, a clot in the leg. Uh, DVT is uh, is very common or used to be very common, still occurs despite our best efforts. But the best treatment for DVT is to get a patient up and get, in, get them going quickly. Mm. So what do you recommend to a person if they do have hip pain? Yeah, so if the pain is starting to become a problem, well, obviously you need to go and see your uh, local doctor. The local doctor will decide whether it's coming from the hip. Um, the very first thing that a patient should do is get an x-ray. Just a plain x-ray can often uh, make the diagnosis. Now, if the x-ray is normal, then then your local doctor might recommend you have an MRI or some other test to try and find the source of the pain. But if you do have a bit of arthritis, then uh, the first thing is to 
try some medication. Anti-inflammatories are very good at relieving pain. Also, you need to modify your activities a little bit to rest the joint, um, to try and stop it becoming acutely exacerbated with pain. And then finally, uh, doing some uh, low-impact exercises to sort of maintain the mobility of the joint and strengthen the muscles around the joint, and that's where physiotherapy comes into play. So those are the first things that people should be doing. But if those things don't uh, provide satisfactory relief, then that's when it's worthwhile coming to see an orthopaedic surgeon. Okay, so first port of call is your GP. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stenning. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about hip procedures uh, and the history of hip procedures over the last 200 years. So if we could leave our listeners with one final and vital message, what would that be? Well, if you've got pain and it's affecting your activities of daily living, you don't have to put up with it. You should go and see your GP, get an x-ray, see if it is arthritis of the hip. And if it is, uh, we can always get rid of it for you. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Stenning. Thanks for listening to Healthy Hawkesbury. If you'd like to learn more about our hospital, doctors and services, please head to sjog.org.au forward slash Hawkesbury or subscribe to Healthy Hawkesbury on your favourite podcast app.